The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. The headlines, Asian equity markets edge higher as the trade tip for tap turns positive. President Trump delaying tariffs on some Chinese goods after Beijing waves levies on several U.S. products. Will it be a September to remember for the ECB? The bank expected to cut the deposit rate and revive a 2.6 trillion euro bond buying program as European growth fears rage on. Hong Kong Exchange shares fall after it launches a $36.6 billion takeover approach of the London Stock Exchange. The former chief executive of the LSE, Xavier Rowley, tells CNBC it's a bold bid, but one that will attract close scrutiny. This is an aggressive move. This is, uh, this is an ambitious move. Uh, whether it succeeds or not, they are definitely short-term. A number of considerations we've, we've broached on a few. Uh, that warrant critical review by shareholders. And oil ministers gather in Abu Dhabi to address oversupply concerns after the group cuts its oil demand outlook. Hadley set to sit down with the Russian energy minister, Alexander Novak, later this morning. Meantime, at this hour, the UK government's Yellowhammer report warns of food shortages and public disorder and the worst-case scenario of a no-deal Brexit. AB InBev put its Hong Kong IPO back on the table two months after pulling the flotation. And Apple passes the $1 trillion market cap level again as investors cheer the launch of its latest products. There was a great conjurer in the United Kingdom, a brilliant comedian. His name was Tommy Cooper. Many of our international viewers will know about him. And actually, he was a dreadful uh, conjurer, a magician. But actually, he was a brilliant comedian. And that became his shtick. So he'd have people thinking, oh, the trick's going wrong. But what he was really doing was getting people barrel loads of laughs, i.e. he professed to be this, but this is what was going on over here. And this is the point about the markets in many ways. Well, not that they're like Tommy Cooper, but like the fact that actually there are things going on over here, but actually, is it what's going on over here we should be looking at? For instance, look at our headlines. Look at our headlines. Our headlines were really intuitive. And I wouldn't have picked different headlines, by the way, for our production team. They were about massive bids for the LSE. They were about trade. They were about European central banks. And they were about the oil market. All of those four factors are really, really important. In fact, far more important than looking at boring old PPI, far more uh, important than looking at boring old sector rotation. Or are they? Or are they? Because really, really interesting rotation. Jeff's been looking at a piece by our great colleague in the States, Bob Pisani, as well. Have a look at it on CNBC.com. It's talking about the massive rotation going. We'll talk about that in a few moments' time. I've been looking at some of the data this week. And as you know, I always say, look, have a look at this. Have a look at the jolts early in the week, the wholesale prices yesterday, the core prices for uh, CPI today, and then retail sales tomorrow. Because occasionally, dare I say it, central bankers look at the data rather than the political rhetoric. 
and it becomes really important as well. We'll talk about this with Scott Teal in a few moments' time, but look at the PPI data yesterday. The wholesale figures, the core rose 0.3% month on month. The 12-month figure was up 2.3%. In my book, that's called inflation, isn't it? No? Anyway, so really interesting. Markets rallied. Really interesting. Again, I saw a piece of copy that said, led by technology. Led by technology, the rally yesterday. No, it wasn't. It was led by the small caps again. The Russell 2K had a 2% rally. It's rallied over 1% three sessions in a row, four out of five sessions as well. There is so much going on in these markets. And that's what I said to you at the start of the week. Do you remember? I was saying, look, ignore the 0.0 on some of these indices. Underneath the surface, my goodness me, it's everywhere. Look at the oil price as well. Really fascinating moves. And again, I love the simplicity sometimes. It's nothing sometimes to do with uh, the underlying supply and demand. No, or the speculators. It's about, okay, uh, Bolton goes. That means US will be less hawkish towards Iran. Uh, that means the price goes down. Or Abdulaziz comes in. That means they're going to be tougher on the oil price because they want a higher price. So the price goes up. Isn't it extraordinary how things like this can have such large moves when actually the fundamentals are quite extraordinary? Spot Gold, by the way, trading 14.95. A little bit of a lessening uh, of that appetite for the yellow stuff. Now, Asian indices, what are they doing? Actually, I haven't had a good look at these today. So we're doing this together, team. Uh, down 1%, up 1% for the Nikkei. Hang Seng down a smidgen as well. Uh, Shanghai Composite, two temps of 1% higher. And the ASX 200, two temps of 1% higher. Let's have a quick look at the opening calls uh, for the European markets. And they're looking in fine fettle if you're long, if you're short, because there are two sides this market. I keep forgetting to tell you that actually if you're short this market, how are you feeling at the moment? You had that big down tick and now we've had the rally back up again because we're within a percent of the record highs on some of these indices, including the S&P. Good morning, Karen Cho. Well done yesterday, I really enjoyed your work. Good morning, Scott Till. I'd just say you're, you're here because I should say you're here because I've already referenced you as well. You are the Chief Fixed Income Strategist at BlackRock Investment Institute. And good morning, Jeffrey Carroll. Good morning, I, I really enjoyed your introduction this morning. It went and, on a bit, um, didn't it? <laughs> but but uh, something occurred to me uh, and then I thought, that's very interesting. And it, it feeds back into what you were saying. Why do male magicians always have very attractive assistants. Can't go there. <laughs> Can't go there, Jeff. Do you know why? Well, historically... Oh, to keep your eye off the, what they're misdirection. doing. Misdirection. Yes, and of course. And you were talking about yes. misdirection at the yes. wall, which That's is exactly. a, yeah. a, a technique that magicians use to hide the mechanics of what's going on. And, of course, everything that's on stage exactly at that time you know, is that all about distracting you. That's exactly what it is. So the interesting question that you raise here is one of intent. Because you talked about the, the, the mechanics of the market and the deceit, perhaps, that's taking place at this point. Is it deliberate? Are, are investors being coaxed into moving into positions that are ultimately going to be losing positions, like buying yourself negative rate bonds at this point? Or is something else going on? The question is, is it deliberate misdirection? And I think we'll bring this up with you, Scott, in just a moment. I just want to make sure we hit the headline story here, though. President Trump has said he will delay increasing tariffs on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods by two weeks as a gesture of goodwill to China. Trump tweeted the move came at the request of China's vice premier, Liu He, uh, due to the fact that the People's Republic of China will be celebrating their 70th anniversary. That's a direct quote. The delay comes ahead of talks early next month and after China exempted some products from tariffs. 
think they did the right thing. I think it was good for them. But they took them off. Yeah, I think it was a, uh, I think it was a gesture. Okay, but it was a big move. People were shocked. I wasn't shocked. Well, let's um, let's pick up on this. Um, it does say Steve, but, I know, but you, you said in the break know, there. Why don't we get? I know Jeff we didn't to, tell the director okay. that you were throwing. Did, did we, we not? No. I thought the director had small, that bit. small. Never mind. Arm of that. Uh, look, if you're listening on the podcast, we'll edit this bit out later, so don't <laughs> worry, you won't hear this bit. Um, and if you're watching, don't worry, we'll move on very quickly. Stop, Scott, I wanted to bring this up. Look, um, even this story around trade could be part of this misdirection for investors because we're being given this impression that a whole lot has changed yeah. and actually it is safe to go back in the water. The sharks have made friends with the humans. Um, and so people are being encouraged to move into this rotation into value in the equity markets and they're being convinced that maybe this is a time to lighten up on some of your sovereign debt here and we're seeing yields rise as a result of that. Um, Are we going to get sucker punched? Well, I think it's a very good point. There's some very big, uh, you know, as, as mentioned, the equity markets had a big move, but within within the equity market, look at the different sectors. There's been some real, you know, real changes in momentum and different types of factors that are, you know, investors choose to to focus on. And I think what's going on here is the market is trying to kind of dovetail the the geopolitical risk plus monetary policy easing, right? We can't forget that the ECB is going to ease today. The, this, the, um, the Federal Reserve is going to ease at least once in the next year, perhaps twice before, before year end. And so investors are kind of caught in this cross current between geopolitical risk and central banks trying to extend the cycle. And so uh, misleading, I think, is a strong word. But, but I think what they're trying to do is decide is when is the turning. Everyone wants to figure out what the turning point is. We've seen a very big backup in yields, right? Guilt yields are 25 basis points higher from the lows over a very short period of time. I mean, in the grand expanse of the rally we've had, that's not that gigantic. But in this short period of time, it's pretty significant. We've seen some big moves in equity factors as well. And so I think investors are trying to decide as those two kind of factors, as those two forces meet, Right, geopolitical risk and monetary policy easing. Right, are 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 those are those factors going to combine to see the economy reaccelerate in 2020, or are we going to go, you know, back towards a recession that you know, let's say, the yield curve suggests or whatever? So, Scott, the unusual. Uh factor this time is that the, the leading catalyst for change is really around trade talks, trade mm-hmm. tensions, because central banks have flagged up very much that it's impacting policy. And we've seen that yeah. in, in just about every speech from Powell so far, right. that it's having an instrumental effect on policy. So if we go back to reading the tea leaves, then on if there's going to be a trade deal between the US and China, what assumption can we make? All we've had is a, a show of faith so far from the Americans about extending out a deadline, which feels as though the Chinese might be playing games because yeah. there's been so much game playing from both sides before. So do we assume that this is a negative or a positive for a trade resolution? Yeah, no, I think there's, there's, I think there's, we have to dis- distinguish between the ECB and the Fed because I think there are very different things going on. But let's just talk about the Fed for one second because I think that's the most, that's the central bank that appears to be responding most directly to what's happening in the U.S.-China trade relations, obviously, because the U.S. is involved. And I think there the critical component for investors to watch is Will the trade tensions push into the real economy in the U.S., right? That's what the central bank is worried about. And the way that they think about it is they see manufacturing slowing, right? They see trade volume slowing. Look at the ISM, non, the manufacturing ISM fell below 50 for the first time, right? It's in 2016. But then look at the real economy. Look at the U.S. consumer, right? That doesn't show really any signs of slowing. And so for the Fed to answer that question, the Fed has to understand or figure out 
whether the trade tensions push into the real economy. Then, if that were the case, then we go into a full-blown easing cycle. Hello. But if it isn't... Strong rising core PPI yesterday, up 0.3 of a percent. In fact, if you strip out some of the other figures, you can actually find a core core figure up yeah. 0.4 of 1% yeah. as well. That smell, yeah. smells like real inflation to me. Well, listen, I mean, I think we should go back to our economics textbooks for a minute here and, and look at when, what... When you increase <laughs> tariffs on goods, prices go up for someone. There you go. So there's a <laughs> supply side shock, right? So it's not a demand side shock. And so the big question, I think, which you have to ask longer term, and this is not for today or tomorrow, right? But this, the reality is, are we pushing prices higher through this supply side shock? If you, you know, if you look back at your, your economics textbooks, that's what's supposed to happen. The market is obviously looking at this as a demand shock, which then the Fed responds to. But we would suggest that longer, you know, looking further afield, inflation, particularly in the U.S., I think Europe is a slightly different situation. But I've just realized that can't be right. Which bit? About it being supply, about, about the inflation going up in the U.S., because it's the Chinese companies that are paying for all of these extra tariffs. <laughs> and I've just got it completely wrong. Sorry, Mr. President. And, and there's something well, odd there's as well. It's not in, affecting the American consumer or companies. Well, there's something odd in the inflation data in China as well, isn't there? Because as we looked at the data that we had a couple of days ago here, uh, the consumer level inflation was up very hard as a res result, uh, I think, of the swine flu and the problems around food prices. But the PPI number was really flat. There was really not very much movement at all here, which, again, is kind of odd given this trade war narrative. But um, we'll come back to this because yep. if, if <clears throat> things are so good, you know, why are we running stories here about Trump demanding that we see zero interest rates at the Federal Reserve. Uh, we're we're going to talk about that, but that story is on our website. November 2020. As is the story about the rotation that we've been discussing here as yep. well. Bob Pisani has got a great write-up on this. The big rotation broken down. Go to cnbc.com for Bob Pisani's article on what's driving equity markets at the moment. And as I say, you'll find that other story about President Trump pushing for zero rates and what that could mean for your wallet. Because let's face it, uh, just like we've seen in Germany, if you are a saver, if you are a boomer trying to eke out your savings, a cut in the key policy rate in the United States will do the same thing to your savings that it's doing to the poor old German saver. It will mean you get less back on your interest on your deposits. So let's just delve into the weeds around ECB day as the hype has been building for months and today the ECB will decide whether to deliver a shot of stimulus to Europe's faltering economy. Analysts are forecasting more QE, a cut to the deposit rate, tiering fresh Ateltre loans and dovish forward guidance. Perhaps the most controversial idea is reviving QE. Um, so let's give you some uh, context on this. The European Central Bank launched the Asset Purchase Programme in March 2015. To date, it's bought over 2.6 trillion euros worth of bonds. Three years later, the Governing Council decided to end the buying. However, the ECB continues to reinvest the principal payments from maturing securities and has said it will do so, quote, for as long as necessary. Um, let's get out to Annetta. So Annetta, I think the question the markets are grappling with here is um, if, if, if Draghi fires the big bazooka again here on his swan song meeting, will Christine Lagarde pick up the baton and stick with the direction that is laid out in this last meeting? 
Yes, I think that's pretty much, or that will be pretty much the case. When she was addressing a European Parliament, Christine Lagarde was making pretty much clear that she will be a continuation of what we have seen from Maya Draghi. So I guess there's not too much of a policy risk to the markets from that perspective, because Christine Lagarde is seen as a very pragmatic um, policymaker. And especially when you look at the targets of the ECB, inflation well below its target, she will have to act. And that's what exactly Maya Draghi was saying during the last press conference. I don't know when I've seen him so vocal about being not happy with inflation at all. And that's also the reason why the market expectations are so big for that meeting. Having said that, let, let's look at QE and the controversial commentary out of the ECB ahead of that meeting, because clearly the Northern European camp doesn't seem to be too comfortable with the relaunch of QE as of today. But at the same time, there's also, I think everybody is very aware of the fact that the markets do have priced it in and that anything which would devi deviate from like a big package, including QE, would be a disappointment to the markets. The like of Ewald Novotny, the governor of the Austrian Central Bank, was quite blunt in saying, well, sometimes the market have to be disappointed. But still, I think Mario Draghi and his team, they don't want that because clearly the, the inflation expectations are very sensitive to what they are doing and a QE relaunch should probably be part of that package. The big question only is how big will be the run rate and how big will be the whole package and the length of the potentially announced QE program and also what are they doing with the problem of the issuer limit or whether they don't think it's a problem. Some analysts do think it's a problem, some analysts don't think it's a problem. Kind of everything depends on how big the, the program potentially is, the run rate and the length of the problem whether they have to touch that issue a limit, which could be a problem given the constitutional court here in Germany. But that back to you. Thank you very much for that, Annette. Looking a nice day in Frankfurt. Scott Teal, um, <clears throat> I have a lot of empathy for what the Germans think is going on. But on the other side of the coin, they don't want more QE. It's eroding their savings. They don't want to spend more money on the fiscal front as well. Yeah. Uh, and yet they don't seem to realise that the data have turned significantly, that now is the, potentially the time to act. Or is it otherwise that you see it? Well, I mean, I think it's a very interesting. This is going to be a very interesting meeting because obviously Draghi has uh, two more meetings before turning over the, uh, the, the reins here. I mean, I think the Europeans, you know, again, it's different than the Fed, mm -hmm. very important because the inflation situation is, it remains too, too low relative to target. So this is not about an insurance rate cut. This is about a fundamental problem. Now, the issue I think that the, Europe the, the European Central Bank has is that despite all of the things that they've done, it's the interest rate channel they've been using, right? So it's rate cuts, QE and forward guidance together has obviously helped growth but obviously hasn't moved the inflation dial high enough for what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So the question is obviously they keep doing that or do they try something else? And the markets are trying to figure out, not for this meeting and perhaps not for, for, the, for the next meeting, but is there gonna be this blending of, of some type of fiscal you know, stimulus in concert with monetary policy? The one thing I would say about the meeting today is what she just said earlier is I think an important point. I do think that the Q relaunching the QE pro program is a little bit more problematic, perhaps, than the market is assigning a, a you know, probability to. 
And the reason for that is the distortion that the ECB believes that it, it plays in the market, you know, with, the, with peripheral bonds and with particular issues around the, the amounts that's been purchased. So if we look at peripheral spreads, I mean, you got to use the microscope here, but this is unfortunately what we have to deal with, with rates so negative. You've seen that actually peripheral spreads outside of Italy, because that's an idiosyncratic story, have actually widened a little bit in the last week or so. And so perhaps the market is reassessing the, you know, the, the additional QE. I think the interest rate channel is clearly one that they're going to push on. Can I ask, so, you, yep, can I ask you quickly about depositeering? Because for our international audience, they're probably sitting back and saying, what yeah, on earth yeah. is depositeering? But exempting about 30% of excess reserves from deposit rate uh, with the ECB is essentially what it means. How confusing is that for international investors and also for those trying to work the system? Because pension funds seem to already be objecting to the notion of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the idea there is to, is to kind of give preferential rate you know, treatment to help again with the, with the concept of easing and making lending something that the banks do more of than less of. I mean, I think... Does it work ultimately, do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's... I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, it, I think it will be introduced. I mean, that is the common, common view. Again, it's something that is, uh, you know, a new policy. Um, I'm not so sure. I think that the issue that they're trying to grapple with is they want to make, you know, funds as cheap as possible, and then they also want them to be lent. Um, and so that's what it is. For, I think for international investors, I think the idea is that this is another form of this interest rate channel that is designed to push, you know, banks push money into the system. I think that's the simplest way to think about it. Uh, let's just mention, thank you, Scott, for that. Don't forget, Decision Time kicks off at 13.30 CET. We will have live coverage of the ECB announcement. And on the deal-making front ahead on the show, the Hong Kong Exchange muscles in on the LSE. But will political concerns derail the proposed $36.6 billion deal? A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Mansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Treasury has said it will closely scrutinise the Hong Kong exchange's $36.6 billion bid for the London Stock Exchange. The Asian bourses' unexpected proposal is contingent on the LSE walking away from its $27 billion refinitiv takeover announced last month. The Hong Kong exchange's offer represents a, a more than 20% premium on LSE's share price before the announcement, but has already raised competition and political concerns. Let's get out to Juliana outside the LSE. Juliana, it does seem as though uh, some of these index deals must come at a time of political crisis. Uh, the Deutsche Börse merge with LSE that didn't go through was around Brexit. Now, after the Hong Kong protests, suddenly this deal is on the table for the LSE to link up the two exchanges. Talk us through some of the hurdles. 
Well, Karen, this is an absolutely fascinating deal. It comes at a critical juncture for not only the exchange industry, but as you just flagged there, politically for both the UK and Hong Kong. Now, this would effectively be the takeover of a British firm by a Chinese company. And yesterday we heard from the chief of the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, who was really keen to emphasize that this is not a Chinese company. It's not even a Hong Kong only company. It's a global company that would be looking to take over the LSE. So really trying to frame the narrative as two global companies coming together rather than a British company and a Chinese company coming together. Now, just looking at the deal and the strategic logic of it, uh, investors do see the long-term strategic value in bringing together two of the world's major trading regions. Together, they could create an 18-hour trading zone. So this would allow for smooth operation of, of the trading of RMB as well as the US dollar and the euro and the pound. So a lot of um, merit in doing that. But of course, the political sensitivity of bringing together a company where over half of the board members are appointed by the Hong Kong government. The Hong Kong government is the number one shareholder in this company. That is an incredibly difficult hurdle to get past. Now, I had a chance to catch up with the former chief of the LSE, someone who is in a very unique position to comment on this uh, situation, Xavier Rollet. And I asked him uh, what he thinks about the rationale of the deal and whether the, uh, the weakness in sterling and the uh, weakness in UK asset prices has anything to do with the motivation to uh, pounce now from the uh, Hong Kong side. Take a listen. A transaction of that sort of companies that are super systemic that reach into a range of complex regulatory oversight relationships globally, engaging in that sort of transaction requires a lot of preparation, a lot of care, a lot of thought. And still, there's a chance it, it may not succeed. It is, in that particular context, reasonably aggressive since the LSE board is already engaged in doing another transaction. So as you heard there from uh, Mr. Rollet, this is an incredibly complex deal uh, and it wouldn't make sense for it to be driven by a weaker sterling given that can change uh, at any point uh, and the, the amount of uncertainty is huge when it comes to the value of sterling moving forward. Now, what you mentioned there in your remarks, Karen, the Refinitiv deal, and I want to make very clear that this deal, this offer from Hong Kong is contingent upon the LSE dropping their agreed uh, uh, their agreement to buy Refinitiv. This was a $27 billion deal they agreed back in August. And at that point, they had decided to go down the path of becoming a enhanced data provider and uh, committing to competing with the likes of Bloomberg. So this deal would take them down a completely different path. And right now, the choice is fairly binary. LSE at this point has said they're considering the proposal. Uh, and at the same time, they remain committed and continue to make progress on the Refinitiv side of things. So yesterday's share price reaction suggests that LSE shareholders, initially very excited about this proposal, have become a little bit more lukewarm as they realize the political sensitivities involved in uh, pursuing the Hong Kong route at this stage. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.